they talk about the randomized control trials that looked at whole body vibration for up to 24 months. Imagine, imagine committing that much time. Two years of your life consistently standing on this vibrating plate for nothing. Oh, man. Hi, thanks for listening to Beyond the Abstract, an online student-led PT journal club. If you're not familiar with us, we're a group of PT students that discuss scientific literature, training, and all things physical therapy. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Anyway, um, yeah, we're back. This is uh, episode 17, I think. Is that right? That's respectable. I think it's 17. Yeah, I think you're correct. Episode 17, that's respectable because like when you turn 16, that's cool. But then when you turn 17, you're kind of, you kind of feel like an adult, don't you? Or Just a little bit. Closer to an adult than not, I suppose. But you yep. can't, you still can't get in as much trouble legally. So, mm. yeah, wait until episode 18 for that. That's true. That's true. Um, John, you brought us this paper. Uh, the title of the paper is Exercise for the Prevention of Osteoporosis in Postmenopausal Women An Evidence Based Guide to the Optimal Prescription. And it is from. Looks like it was authored by, I want to say it's Daily and colleagues, and it was published in 2018. Um, John, I, I know you have a little bit of a backstory for having an interest in this topic and kind of bringing this paper forward. So if you want to chat about that a little bit, I think that'd be really cool. Okay, sure. Um, so, I mean, I've told you guys before, but I don't know if any of our listeners, listeners know, but uh, my mom has a variety of health conditions, and one of those is osteoporosis in addition to her uh, MS. So... Um, I've been trying to work with her to help mitigate some of the um, bone loss or any negative consequences of that osteoporosis. She's been rather um, resistant to too many medications, so she really wanted me to try to help her find some type of sustainable exercise program. Um, I don't want to get too you know far off track as far as like what we're doing. We're doing some resistance exercise mostly because that's been pretty easy for her to adhere to versus say a running program has been a little bit difficult for her to, to actually do. Uh, with that being said though, it kind of sparked my interest in osteoporosis training in general and just what effects resistance training in particular might have. So we all decided this was a topic that we would mutually be interested in discussing. And so we uh, did some searching and that's how I found this paper. And I liked it because it gives a few points on different types of exercise and uh, like rep schemes and things like that, which is, I think, very important for any type of provider working with patients with osteoporosis. Yeah. How long have you been training with your mom at this point? So consistently, I would say for about a year. So it's been pretty cool to see the progress. I started her out pretty much deadlifting like 20 pounds and now she's doing over hundred pounds. So it's pretty, pretty good progress. That's awesome, man. Thanks. Yeah. Exciting. Now she's, now she's like, uh, I can't miss my exercises. It's like, you know, brushing her teeth or whatever for her. So it's pretty cool to see her coming in and like, have that exercise, you know? Get you with that behavior change. That's awesome, man. Thanks. It's just been, it's just been great to see how much it's um, affected her kind of an improved her confidence too, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's another thing that we see. And I don't want to get too off topic. I know you want to introduce the paper and everything, but I feel like a lot of times we, we have, when, particularly when we're working with patients perhaps that have osteoporosis, it's easy to see them as being extremely fragile and just recommend they avoid anything that might lead to fractures or anything that might put them at any type of, I don't know, I don't want to say risk, but any type of potential for having a little bit of load. Um, and she used to be more fearful of that, you know, like more fearful of, of running too much, of lifting too much. And I feel like she's definitely improved her confidence with those activities now. And I feel like that's something that's super important for any, any patient with osteoporosis. That's why we do it. That's awesome. 100%. So let's, we'll segue into this paper. So just some numbers. Uh, the authors note that in women who are postmenopause, roughly a third of them are likely to have osteoporosis. And within that group, roughly 40% will sustain uh, greater than or equal to one uh, related fracture. And then of those who suffer hip fractures, for example, uh, the authors go on to say that a third will die within the year that they have the fracture. Um, Another 40% will become institutionalized. And then another 60% will require assistance a year on from the initial injury. So I think it goes without saying that osteoporosis and osteoporosis related fractures are a problem um, for personal safety, but also with the burden that it puts on the healthcare system. in general, the first-line intervention or the first-line management for osteoporosis is uh, pharmaceuticals and medication. Um, with medication usage, you can see a risk reduction of 20 to 60 percent, but the medication doesn't specifically address the uh, myriad of risk factors that come with osteoporosis. And what the authors outline in this introduction is that exercise training effectively addresses many of the modifiable risk factors associated with increased fracture risk, such as uh, bone strength, falls risk, and then falls impact. And throughout this paper, the authors go back to these five principles that they lay out in this introduction. Uh, These principles are the principle of specificity, the principle of progressive overload, the principle of reversibility, the principle of initial values, and then the principle of diminished returns. Uh, I think all three of us are pretty familiar with these and perhaps some of us or some of you guys in the listening audience might be as well, but we'll just give some uh, definitions of each of these real quick. So when they say specificity, they are referring to um, skeletal adaptations that are site specific. And they note that uh, skeletal remodeling from load is not systemic and that in order for the training to be specific, you need to target areas that would be predisposed to fracture through weakness or bone density changes. So areas like the uh, vertebra or the femoral neck or the wrist, I think those are some of the areas that they cited. And they go on to cite another paper here that, let me see it real quick. They cited an article that looked at individuals over two years that followed a back extension strengthening program. And they noted that improved spinal extensor muscle strength was associated with greater spinal bone density and fewer vertebral fractures eight years later compared to controls. So it speaks to that that principle of specificity. Uh, They also talk about overload. And as we know, with training, the training has to progressively get harder in order to continue to induce change and to drive adaptation. 
Um, with reversibility, they mentioned that if you train for an extended period of time and then take time off from that training and don't do enough to uh, sustain the adaptations or the gains that you've made, um, you will in, in a way regress. Um, they mentioned that there, it's unclear if there's a minimal effective dose of exercise needed to retain the gains that are made after an extended period of training. So that's another area that needs uh, further study, but the principle of reversibility, particularly with training for osteoporosis still applies. Uh, they also mention this principle of initial values. And they say that the greatest changes in bone in response to loading will typically occur in those with the lowest initial bone mineral density, which I guess kind of makes sense, particularly with working, for example, with new clients or new athletes. Um, sedentary persons or people who are unfamiliar with exercise, they typically show uh, really, really fast and big gains within the first couple months of training, but then those things tend to taper off over time. I mean, I'm speaking anecdotally, but I don't know if either of you can comment on that as well. Yeah, that's what I see. <laughs> that's, that's what I'd be seeing. Okay. Um, and finally, the principle of diminished returns. The authors note that following any initial exercise induced skeletal adaptation, subsequent gains are likely to be slow and modest with a similar loading regimen. So essentially the, what I took from that was if you say, you know, have someone deadlift 70 kilos over a period of, you know, X number of weeks, as long as the weight stays the same, the adaptations made over that number of weeks are likely going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And they mentioned that perhaps you can combat this with um, this principle of progressive overload. I think that they, they go on to talk about that in this section, right? But um, in terms of yeah. principles that they reference, that's all five of them. So I think another important distinction to add to the principle of diminished returns, or and this may be more on the, into the next section, was that um, just talking about the bone remodeling timeline, uh, lasting up to three to eight months. Uh, this sort of is not a, is not a short process by any means. Uh, interventions need to last up to a minimum of six to nine months, preferably 12 to 24 for, uh, to detect some of these true physiological changes. So I think, yeah, just talking about those principles a little bit, I really do wish we had more evidence on sort of this idea of reversibility or minimum effective dose, because how often, uh, obviously, you know, John has done a great job sort of instilling this behavior change like he was sort of touching on. So it sounds like that's going to be more of a, a lifelong adaptation and sort of behavior that his mom takes on, which is just obviously always what we're after. But it would be nice if we could have sort of some some numbers there as to after people have our direct supervision and guidance, you know, how much they really need. But I mean, did you guys have any other thoughts on that or just kind of ideas? I was curious to hear about that if you did. So I don't want to bring in too many other things, um, but if Sean wants to attach it to the show, show notes afterwards, I recall reading um, in a book discussing, um, not specifically for physical therapy, but for discussing training adaptations and uh, bone remodeling, typically they said the uh, repetition range is typically 30 to 35 repetitions was enough to stimulate um, increased bone density. If um, generally, if it was done more as like more frequent repetitions uh, or repeti less repetitions with frequent rest periods. And if it had sufficient intensity, that was enough to stimulate bone growth. However, um, specific intensities or minimum effective doses for intensities were not mentioned. And we can definitely link that in the show notes. 
you guys want afterwards. But. The other point I wanted to have, but if you had, it was not relevant to this point about a minimum effective dose. So if you wanted to make your point first, go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking like, there's gotta be some sort of intuition that could be had there. Um, just thinking about it logically, like if there, if this amount of training or this amount of stimulus results in this adaptation in the bone, then just people that regularly engage in X amount of stimulus or X amount of load on the skeletal system that they'll, their bodies will just chronically kind of have that adaptation. Like, I think we see that in just, just different sort of adaptations to the musculoskeletal system based on just participating in different sports, right? It's yeah, a long-term adaptation. So just kind of having that lifestyle change and regularly participating in some amount of these types of activities that we're going to get into, um, the, the body will, you know, have to meet those demands over a, sure. a chronic. And I'm sure too, yeah. like kind of Sean was alluding to, um, depending on your prior level of activity, that dosage may be different. So if you're already meeting this level, if you want to see any kind of gains beyond that point, you need to increase the total loading or volume that you're exposed to. But the other point I had was their point about um, growth being stimulated by forces from multiple directions and variability. I think that's a very important point because because they note that the um, necessary load might be different if approached from like a different angle, essentially. They may delve into this further in the paper, but I think that's important to keep in mind as we're talking about specific exercises and whatnot, uh, because for example, we might think that you have X amount of load that is necessary for a typical vertical force being applied, let's say through like a barbell squat or something, or just running. Uh, but if you're doing something like hip thrust, that entirely changes the force vectors and the load that's applied to the various bones and musculature and, and that's an important thing. Or for example, if you apply force through different muscles, uh, through bones pulling on them, for example, if you do um, a hip abduction exercise versus a hip extension exercise, that's going to place different force vectors upon the bone itself and different parts of the bone and may lead to changes at lower amounts of relative tension or force compared to the traditional force that you're used to because uh, again, the body is not a climate, not used to force from that particular direction. So it's needs less of a stimulus to do so, to make changes. Mm. Any other thoughts or? Um, the only other comment that I would make is kind of in line with the timelines that Jonathan mentioned earlier. Uh, the authors note that mechanosensitivity of bone diminishes with age and any exercise induced changes in bone density after menopause are typically modest. But they go on to note that it appears that even maintenance of bone mineral density may be clinically relevant. And they cite a pharmaceutical study or they cite, um, yeah, they do cite one pharmaceutical study where they say uh, a difference compared to placebos of two to 4% in DEXA bone mineral density over a one year period was associated with a 42 to 59% fracture risk reduction. So even just maintaining the bone mineral density that someone has may actually predispose them to uh, a lower risk of fracture in the future. Absolutely. And that's, that's a great point too, as far as we think about just, um, this kind of just makes me think about not only increasing bone mineral density, but also just increasing the other factors that are relevant to reducing fracture risk. Kind of like you mentioned earlier, increasing muscle strength, reducing um, you know, muscle loss that typically occurs past menopause, things like that. So yeah, with that, I think we can probably transition into the exercise for the prevention of uh, osteoporosis and fractures and all things bone. Then bones and bones. All right, so 
Um, the paper discusses a variety of different exercise forms, um, and I'm just going to take them in order here. Um, so they note that the uh, clinical practice guidelines for prevention and management of osteoporosis recommend exercise training um, to slow or maintain bone mass. Um, not all forms are equally uh, effective in doing so. And also we don't, there's still mixed evidence for various types of exercise um, on increasing bone mass. So the first one they start out with is walking or other forms of aerobic exercise. And they note that in general, these activities um, have shown little to no effect on pre preventing age-related bone loss. And again, they say that that can be explained by the fact that these activities typically don't reach the necessary levels of intensity or frequency or what have you that we might need. So, and this is not from this article, but I remember reading that even traditional walking, you might get up to forces of like three times body weight, you know, through the, through the femur. Um, so you need to do something that's beyond that. If you're walking regularly, then you need to be able to do something beyond traditional walking to actually achieve improved bone mass. And they do mention that higher intensity levels, I believe they say, um, intensity is around 75% or greater of the maximal, maximal oxygen uptake or with weighted vests may lead to some improvements or protection against bone loss. Um, one other additional point they bring out here, which is important, is that these forms of activity may also lead to increased fall risk or fractures. Um, that's, again, just in some studies, not all of them. So it's not that we should discourage these forms of activity, it's just make sure they're done in a safe manner. The second form of exercise they mentioned is progressive resistance training. So your typical program of, you know, compound exercises, squats, deadlifts, bench press, what have you. Um, and they recommend this as an effective strategy and the way they mentioned that it increases bone mass rather than simply through the impact of the exercise itself is also through the bone pulling on the skeleton as it's generating force to overcome the resistance that you're applying, such as the barbell. Um, and it does note that it supports, uh, the research, that most research supports uh, um, including this in any type of program intended to to protect against bone loss. However, um, it may be more effective for certain areas of the body. So for example, there are mixed findings with regard to the effects of progressive resistance training on hip and spine bone mineral density in postmenopausal women, um, despite marked improvements in muscle mass and strength. And again, that might be due to inadequate loading, intensity, or what have you. Um, of note, it seems to be particularly, it seems to be effective for improving um, bone mass in the spine, but perhaps not as much in the femur and hip. Um, one important point that they mention is that this form of exercise may lead to improvements in factors that other forms of exercise do not, such as increased muscle mass, increased strength, increased speed of muscle firing reaction time, uh, which may be important for fall reduction and things of that nature. Um, so just to look at some of the intensities and loads and that they recommend, uh, they say typically moderate to high intensities. Uh, so two to three sets of, they recommend eight to 12 repetitions at 70 to 85% of maximal muscle strength is recommended, uh, targeting large muscles across the hip and the spine. Kind of going from the progressive resistance training um, form of exercise, they mentioned high velocity power training. 
And with this, again, they say that more research is needed. However, um, this may lead to greater improvements, again, things like reaction time, muscle, uh, like rate of force development, things like that, uh, which may be important for um, the example they give is a study uh, which found greater improvements in chair rising time and stair climbing ability in older adults who perform some type of high velocity power training compared to, um, I believe traditional, yeah, compared to traditional progressive resistance training over 12 months. Um, let's see. So next they mention weight bearing impact exercise. So with weight bearing exercise, again, there's various forms of jumping and hopping that can be done and they can lead to a variety of loading and uh, forces on various aspects of the skeleton. The next form of exercise they recommend is just multimodal training, incorporating multiple forms of what we just discussed and also including balance training, which shows positive results in general. Um, they've mentioned another form of um, intervention as well towards the end of the paper, uh, whole body vibration training. And they cite a few studies that show that there is, doesn't seem to be much benefit towards this type of, um, towards this type of intervention, which may simply again be various faults in the loading parameters or what have you. But they also mentioned that there may be issues with safety regarding this. And so it's probably not the best form of exercise or best form you know, of exercise. I, I can say anecdotally, I found huge effects from whole body vibration training. You, know, As you do that every st night, right, John? Standing on, standing on that vibratory plate that I spend $1,200 on in my living room, it's super effective at calming my nerves now. Yeah, I thought that wasn't that funny. The, the I've never heard of that ever. The, the vibration training, I kind of had a chuckle at that. I don't know about you guys, but like standing on these vibratory plates. I mean, I guess in, in theory, it could sort of induce some, you know, some load through the skeletal system, but just, I just thought that was funny. What's the difference between those and those giant massage chairs at the mall? It's not axial, bro. Eh, is it really that different though? <laughs> no, it's really not. <laughs> oh boy. The, the massage chairs seem way more comfortable. You can do that for free too. Your difference. Just, just go into the mall for a couple minutes and sit in the massage chair. Mm -hmm. Get my daily dose of uh, bone loading. Going to the mall. <laughs> At that point, the walking to the chair might actually be more beneficial than the, the chair itself. There you go. If it's not sufficient intensity of 75% maximum oxygen uptake. Right. So they got a fast walk and yeah, exactly. do a couple of hops and skips on the way over. Got it. There you go. Um, okay, so just to tie up some loose ends, if you will, or bring it all together, um, we've touched on sort of make three main types of exercise for inducing some change on individuals with osteoporosis or low bone mineral density, and those three being progressive resistance training, weight-bearing impact exercise, and then some other various forms of exercise, challenging balance, stepping and mobility as the authors put it. So they have a nice table in the paper to sort of summarize all of these things and would be, be like a good go-to resource, if you will, if you just want to know what can I do to um, you know, give the best to my patients? What are the, what are the, what's, what are the brass tacks here? Which by the way, brass tacks, not a phrase I understand at all. Do you, I mean, does it make any sense to you guys? But I've heard that throughout my life. It seems very 1800s-ish. Okay, maybe that's why. As soon as I was born, I wasn't born then. I've never heard that exercise or that uh, term before. 
John. to exercise. Oh, okay. Well, you learned something. Anyways, to get down to brass tacks. So for progressive resistance training, uh, John's touched on this a little bit, but uh, we're going to go over frequency, intensity, and then the dose, as well as some just some examples. So for the progressive resistance training, uh, frequency, best evidence is looking like greater than or equal than or equal to two days per week with an intensity of 75 to 80% of one rep max. And that's somewhat equivalent to something like a five to an eight on an RPE scale. And we've, we've touched a bit on RPE in a lot of previous episodes. So be sure to go check those out. Um, and then the, the dose, I like that they put this in here, um, up to eight exercises. So greater than or equal to eight exercises, more specifically, targeting the muscles that are attached to or crossing the hip and spine. So that comes back to that principle of specificity. And then two sets, at least of eight to 12 repetitions. And then they give some examples here. This is obviously nothing new, but things like squats, lunges, uh, leg press, you know, just standing exercises like, you know, loaded plantar flexion, things along those lines. Uh, and then obviously sort of the similar ones for the upper extremity. Um, yes. So moving on to weight bearing exercise, the, for the frequency for this one could be a little bit higher as they, they put it up to four to seven times per week. And then these are going to be impact activities that are somewhere in the, the realm of two to four times body weight. And they talked earlier in the paper that the ground reaction force is actually a, a nice, has a nice association with the actual strain that's put through the bone. So that's the amount of force through the ground when the, the extremity is planted. It's associated obviously with the axial load, I suppose, through the, the bone. So some, some examples of um, exercises in that range of that sort of two to four times body weight, things like lateral step-ups to various heights, um, forward step-ups, hopping on a single leg, and um, you know, jumping tasks. So things like a uh, single leg hop, I already said, but, you know, vertical jumps or side to side hopping. Um, you're just going to have to obviously grade that to the, to the individual. And then for the dose on those anywhere from 50 to hundred jumps per session divided into three to five sets of 10 to 20 repetitions. Um, and they, they do make the, the point there that multi-directional uh, loading is, is a uh, something to consider and then not to get too off track here, but they do talk a little bit about, you know, individuals with osteoarthritis who may have a great deal of pain with things like this. It, just basically just let pain be your guide. Um, there's no contraindication for individuals with osteoarthritis to perform these exercises, but, uh, just kind of letting, like I said, pain be your guide with those. And obviously if they're too painful, then pull back and then work up to it. So that's kind of the, the main big picture points that I got from how we can use progressive resistance training and then this uh, weight bearing impact exercise to affect change here. before we kind of get into our own little discussion amongst ourselves. 
Yeah, I, I like that they, and I guess this is just going to get us right into our discussion now this relates to clinically and how we can use it. But I do like that they provided a lot of examples of things like, you know, when you hear something like weight bearing impact exercise, like what does that even mean kind of, or I've always been a little bit afraid of that or didn't really know how I could put that into practice. But I like this table one where they sort of give these activities, lunging, walking, side lunging, and then give the, the amount of force that that would sort of equate to. Um, so I thought it gave a lot of good solid examples and things that I could see myself using. Um, and then also kind of gave me some confirmation that some of the activities that I was already doing with certain patients were, were, were of sufficient uh, load and I wasn't really aware that they would be such as like a lateral step up, you know, which obviously is sort of an, an impact, a weight bearing impact activity. I think in my head, I was always thinking jumping or like jumping up uh, box jumps or depth jumps, things like that. But, you know, even these other, um, I guess you got to kind of consider the individual, right? Even things like lateral step ups and stair ambulation are, are affecting change. So maybe this is getting into the weeds, but I wonder, is it, is it the stepping up or the stepping down that they're referring to? Let's see. I like, appreciate that question, but it looks like, did they, I want to say they divided the step up or down. I imagine it would be the step down, wouldn't it? (laughs) To me, well, let's see. Peak vertical ground reaction force. Hmm. No, they say step up, Sean. I'm sorry. Hmm. But no, I hear what I, I hear what you mean. I don't know if you're sort of just semantically being funny, but no, no, I, I think, like, I think you have a point. The same thing with stair ambulation. I wonder if there's more of a benefit like going downstairs than going up. Not that it I think it really matters in the grand scheme of things. You would have them do it anyway, but more for my curiosity, I guess. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about just the the planting, but then, yeah, this I f- I'm not even going to say because I feel like the bio I'm doing a disservice to the biomechanist and I'm just kind of butcher this. So never mind. That's just you a silly right. question. Ignore me. If you just stomp. The step up will be effective. Oh, I was going to okay. say, well, no, that is that is an activity they talk about. Is literally yeah. stomping the ground. <laughs> Could you imagine? All right, patient, stomp on the floor. Three sets of 20, I'll be right back. Although we joke, but that would be a really, really interesting way to, to challenge balance and challenge coordination, like to maybe use a laser pointer, almost like you would have that. <laughs> you know, like old Westerns, dance for me, boy. <laughs> Dude, foot stomp is up to 4.6 times body weight. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, think but, about someone that... who comes in with, with balance and coordination impairments, who's at a higher risk for, for fractures because maybe they're in that, that bracket of people who have osteoporosis i don't know how task specific that is to their day-to-day but maybe they have a lot of bugs in the house i mean i like that point to sean because like that's the other thing that they mentioned that i was going to bring up is like you can incorporate balance training to other exercises or other activities you know and it's like i think not necessarily the stomach itself per se is is completely specific to activities of daily living but i mean you are going to be kind of like stepping over things you're going to be changing where you're stepping let's say you're walking through I don't know if you're a grandma or whatever who has just playing with their grandkids and they have a bunch of toys out and you're trying to try to avoid that and you're stepping around stuff, right? I, I can see a case being made for some of the relevance of those type of activities. Or if there's so, a spider on the floor, you got to stomp that spider. True, true. Yeah. You have a lot of spiders on the floor. Or if you have a lot of stink bugs in the house. That's if, for those of you who have wood heat, for some reason, it, it seems like stink bugs like to hide in the chimneys. I don't know why. 
Mm. Virginia probs. Yeah, right. Yeah. Does this paper change you, your guys' thinking in terms of like clinical decision-making or what you guys would do with patients clinically? It does for me in the sense of, again, not just focusing on balance training. I saw that so much in the clinic where that was basically the go-to is we just focused on single leg balance, right? It's very static. It's very like isolated. Um, that was the go-to for patients with osteoporosis. The other thing is even for like with what I was doing for my mom, I feel like I would like to start including more like of the hopping type of activities to make sure we're challenging the femur enough, um, make sure to include a few like multi-directional things, stuff like that. It doesn't have to be too complicated, but just a few, like at tweaking a few things here and there as we progress, adding a little more variety, stuff like that. Not crazy variety in the sense of like hula hoop jumping or whatever, but um, a little bit of variety of loading I think would be important, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, how often I have, I haven't, or, yeah, I haven't really seen anyone that I'm thinking is coming to me or my CI really, right? Because we're still students that need, is needing physical therapy just because of, or have had their referral just because of their bone density. There's usually so many other, so, something else that was their primary reason. Maybe it's like recurrent falls. And this is something that is, we can just assume is also probably likely going on. Um, so that's just kind of where my head goes, right? It's like, I don't, I don't think that this is ever like the first thing that's jumping out at me just because, and, and whether it's right or wrong, maybe we, we probably should be getting more referrals for just generalized, um, physical fitness or people that are at a r risk due to this particular pathology. That sounds so intense, but particular condition, if you will. So that just sort of talked in a circle there, but I don't know. Like too, just what you were saying, Jonathan, is maybe, I don't mean to cut it in too much. I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but you said that maybe we don't see patients just for osteoporosis per se, and that maybe it's important. It's would be a good thing that we could start seeing more as PTs. And I totally agree with that because I feel like we're in a good position to be able to have some benefits for you know, to help these patients have some benefits. Um, and if, particularly because I believe the patient, the paper mentions in the intro that, that after medications are given or whatever your typical initial, you know, interaction with your doctor or whatever for, you know, you get on some sort of pharmacological intervention and the follow-up is usually not great for those types of things. Patients are usually very poor at adhering to any type of, to their medications um, and usually any type of follow-up program specifically to target, you know, reducing bone loss is usually not that great. So I feel like actually having patients coming in more regularly to a PT or, uh, you know, somebody fitness trainer, what have you, I think would be a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would use this now that I'm thinking of it a little bit more and now that you're, you're kind of speaking on it more, I think I would use this if I was in a slightly different role perhaps, or if I was seeing a slightly different population, like people would just being referred to me, like you said, or just I'm happy to see more of a general population of people in this demographic. I'm just going to consider these things more, maybe, and give and have these ideas as sort of more things to hone in on than maybe something else that I'm already biased to. But for me, clinically, I think this would give me license to do more with my patients who maybe are predisposed to higher risk of fractures and, and that sort of thing to not hinge on the idea that they're frail or, you know, because they have osteoporosis or because they have a 
uh, history of falls, for example, that we have to take it easy. Like we can still push them and we can still, you know, kind of chase this, uh, this goal of uh, greater bone density, but along with that reduced risk of falls and maybe more muscle strength and more power and maybe a little bit of self-efficacy along the way um, for, you know, better long-term outcomes. That's how I would take it. And I'd even think that this informs me as a coach too, with clientele that perhaps are a little bit older and, you know, I can, again, I can push them a little bit more and, and kind of shoot for these, these outcomes with bone mineral density and, you know, all the stuff I said earlier. Right. Yeah. I would almost feel like a luxury to be able to, to have a client where you're able to focus on just these things. Like, let's just talk about from our clinical experience. Um, you know, we get the referral for recurrent falls. Okay. So usually there's sort of lower hanging fruit or just things we typically need to work on before we're really considering, like we just want to make them safe first and foremost. And as physical therapists, I feel like we're really focusing on those things and maybe more task specific training um, that's specific to their day to day. And then to be able to see someone like, let's say like we have a friend Lane, who's a coach. Imagine he's just have, has a client coming to him. That's in this age bracket, uh, um, you know, 65 year old woman who just has already has the initiative that wants to be healthier and just wants to have some sort of exercise. And if I was in his position, then now I'm thinking, okay, like my, my eyes are opened up to all these other things that I could potentially help this person with. And I kind of have the luxury to do so. And maybe sometimes we are in that position, but I just, yeah, I yeah, I think that's all I have to say on that. Yeah. If I hear what you're saying, maybe to piggyback off of it, like, you know, this looks very different from the 65 year old lady that comes into the gym looking to improve her fitness compared to the 89 year old who's using a, a standard walker who walks in, who's on oxygen, right? who's there for a recurrent risk of falls and is recovering from a femoral neck fracture, for example, the landscape maybe, looks a little bit different. True. Yeah. And maybe all the things that we are already going to work on is going back to that idea of this principle of initial values, right? Like if she's already physically deconditioned maybe all of the things we're going to do we'll have an we'll have a change here but um it's it's not one of those that we're like that's our main focus but there's some nice secondary benefits and obviously that's just the best that's the best part about exercises there's multi-system effects right of it, so. then you counterbalance that with what the author's site is like the the amount of time it takes to actually induce an observable physiologic change you know do mm. we see patients for that long or yeah I suppose maybe in some instances we do, but you kind of weigh the, like you're saying, the initial values and maybe the, the first three to five months, they have a really, really large magnitude in gains, but in order to really see right. change, you need them there for nine months. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's say you're a outpatient physical therapist and you have a referral and you're probably going to see this, I don't know, 80 year old woman, like you just said, for most likely four to eight weeks. And that's going to be it. You're probably not going to be able to have the insurance uh, approval to do more than that. Mm -hmm. It is doing, or it is doing side to side jumps or, you know, single leg hopping or whatever is an appropriate task for that person gained aimed at improving their, or improving their bone mineral density to put them at a, a less likely risk for fracture upon falling is that even, is that worth the, you know, the, are there really fruits of that labor? Because we're not going to have a lot of time with them. I, I would argue that there's still benefits of doing all of the things that we're going to do with them. It's just, it's a shame that we might not get to that point. So maybe 
if your thought process is that I'm going to affect change on the skeletal system here, then you might want to reanalyze what your priorities are for those eight weeks or something. Because um, yeah. like, like you alluded to earlier, they're probably not there because of bone mineral density changes. They're, they're there because right. of X, Y, and Z. Like, a, you know, in this case, probably recurrent falls. So you address that, but you just hope the things that you include probably address all these other things that are likely to come hand in hand with that. I, I guess, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And maybe also I'm sort of just checking myself because I think I've in the past kind of thought, oh, I have this older lady or older gentleman doing like a loaded squat and I'm kind of pumped for myself because I'm thinking that this is going to, this is going to help their scalable system as well as all the other things, but maybe really that's going to, that's going to happen over a longer period of time. And so I'm on that, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not to say that what you're doing isn't, isn't helping. It's just maybe the, the magnitude of what it is at the given time isn't as great as maybe you want it to be, or, you know, like the authors mentioned here, like the, the gains are particularly for older people, pretty modest. So yeah, the degree yeah. to which you're having an effect is kind of up in the air, but I, I, you know, don't sell yourself short. I still think you're helping at that point. Oh yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I think everyone should, everyone should be squatting. Definitely. There's, there's, like I said, tons of, tons of systemic benefits, multi system, multi-system benefits of exercise and things, but um, yeah, it's just makes me think a like little it. bit longer picture, longer term, how we can keep these behaviors up for if we want to affect change here. Right. Beyond the plan of care, essentially. Yeah. I think where that leads to is just kind of being, you know, providing good referrals to like a trusted coach or something at that point, you know, or some sort of wellness program or whatever you get help establish the habit, basic, you know, principles or whatever, and refer them to a relevant coach. Totally. Yeah. Maintenance is so important. Like I, I remember having like patient's caregiver asked me, or it was his wife in this case, but also caregiver, like, you know, how long can I expect like uh, these gains to last or like his gait so much better? Like how long can I expect to last? And I didn't really have a super solid answer, but really it would have been a matter of keeping up with this. And like, I should be able to, or we should be able to have resources to really, to keep these habits in place. Um, that's tricky. I was going to say, I think that speaks to a couple of things too, with like, you know, behavior change and maybe when the initial conversation happens of like what the plan is going to look like, or when you kind of engage in that shared decision-making, you know, not describing it as like, if we're trying to get to this end goal, but more so we're just trying to ingrain a habit and do this throughout the, you know, the rest of your life, essentially. Yeah. Make that the theme, if you will, it's probably a good place to start off. Mm -hmm. Definitely. This is just a pet peeve, but on table two, under I the exercise, yeah, use caution with lifting weights higher than the shoulder height to limit rotator cuff injury. A little bit frustrating, but you know. Do you think, do you think that was anic- Having oh, people God. jump and stuff to increase bone density, but God forbid we lift over our shoulders because or over our head because you know, rotator cuff is just going to go if it's not already gone, which is what we see in people over, the, over 65 anyway, so. Yeah, that, yeah, that kind of, yeah. <laughs> are people over 65 born without rotator cuffs? Yeah, only those who are born over 65. Weirdly, because I think we all get there at some point, if we're lucky. People born after 1950 do not have, or before 1950 don't have rotator cuffs. That would be 70 or something like that, but. 1945.
right? Sure. Oh, geez. I don't, let's not even try. <laughs> let's just leave that. Let's just leave that there. Yes, another thing you can add to the, add to our, um, I think 55. Yeah. It's another thing you need to add to our uh, bio or Instagram individuals after 1945 <laughs> are over 65. <laughs> Are over are over sixty five. That's a fact. Oh, I'm the math is tough. proud owner of two functioning rotator cuffs. So here we go. Happy for uh, I heard a I heard a patient say rotator cup for the first time a couple months ago, and I I was kind of proud of myself because I've always heard that people say that, but I've never heard anyone actually say it. So I kind of feel like I have a little little badge there now. I've like cool right there. Someone, yeah. Have you ever heard of, like the rotary cuff? <laughs> yeah, of course. I've heard that a lot. That's solid. Uh, so, Jonathan, you were mentioning, I guess, maybe this was your last clinical or the clinical prior to that, but you used a lot of these exercises with, with patients who may have fallen into this category. Am I correct in saying that? Uh, yeah, a couple. Yeah. A couple. Did you find, maybe not from like a physiologic change in bone density standpoint, but maybe from more of like a self-efficacy or confidence with exercise or competency with exercise standpoint that your patients improved with the stuff that you guys did, or maybe just yeah, talk about that briefly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think what I, what I was getting to there, getting to with that point was things like stair training or lateral step-up training or lunges, you know, things along those lines or actually maybe lunges aren't the best example because they're fairly lower on the list. But um, the first couple I mentioned, it, things like that do have some effect on loading the scalable system pretty well. So I was more so just saying it's nice to see that some of those activities do have a nice secondary effect um, in that respect. But I think really the reason I was primarily using those interventions were because they were just more of a, a task-specific thing that the patients needed to do and then with practice they just became more confident with it um in general so i don't know if that answers your question really but no, i think I it does really did. no i think it does okay. definitely think it does that was the other point that i wanted to couple with like the um exercise as a habit not necessarily like an endpoint thing that i said earlier like um salient seems to be like a key ingredient with adherence long-term yeah. adherence yeah. I mean, our bias is always going to be resistance training. It's relatively cheap. It's very safe, but you know, you hope right. that you can impart some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess you just want your people that you're training and or patients that you're working with to like it. So it becomes less of a chore. Just instilling that love of activity is so important to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah particularly activity that I suppose a lot of these patients have been for lack of a better word robbed of because of their condition. Yeah. Cause obviously they're, they're there to see you for something and they can't do X, Y, and Z because of a, B and C. So you just hope that the, the exercises or the interventions that you, you incorporate are salient and get them to, if not back to where they were, at least to a point where they're happy doing what they're doing. I'm about to, sorry, I was about to say something that's more on the just kind of joking and dumb side, but you guys continue having a more intelligent conversation, please. It's okay, Jonathan. Be our comedic relief. 
I'm just looking at his paper and they talk about the randomized control trials that looked at whole body vibration for up to 24 months. Imagine, imagine committing that much time, two years of your life consistently standing on this vibrating plate for nothing. Oh man, it's just, I mean, you gotta love science. Like see, someone's gotta do it. And I'm really appreciative if they did, but. Yeah, like if you can dedicate two years to, to whole body vibratory training, can't we dedicate two years to other stuff? Well, I'm glad that they did because at least we can confidently say, let's probably not do that. But man, you're right. You're so right. Why? Yeah. Why? Why can't we study something else for two years? Um, more of a question than anything else. Do you think it's worth going over some of these unanswered questions that they have at the end of the paper? I've got three highlighted and I don't know why I highlighted them or two rather please, two highlighted. Please read them. I'm not sure I remember, but yeah, please read them. So under the heading effects of exercise training on bone strength and its determinants in postmenopausal women, uh, that first sentence, a clinically important question that remains unanswered is whether training induced improvements in aerial BMD are associated with improved or maintained whole bone strength, particularly at common fracture sites. Mm. So I guess the thought process being that um, an increase in like the amount of bone and they define it as grams per centimeter squared, if that's actually related to um, maintained bone strength at common fracture sites, because maybe bone deposition isn't necessarily, so isn't equal to bone strength, I guess is maybe what they're getting at. That's yeah, a great point I, mean, I was thinking of too, because they talk about like, I don't know, cortical like size and stuff beyond simple uh, like density, we think of like bone mineral density is like the increase in like the amount of, I don't know, like the trabeculae and stuff, but I know you don't have to put this in the main part if you don't want, but I remember in the CSCS book, they're talking about how sometimes resistance training in particular is associated with more increases in like cortical strength and whatnot than bone mineral, bone mineral density itself. So even if we don't see the initial increases in bone mineral density in the femur, for example, with squats, they do tend to notice like changes in the cortical bone. Uh, and increases in strength, which I think is interesting. But I don't know if that's quite the same question you're asking, but I feel it's kind of related. I'm not even sure if I'm interpreting that question correctly. I think, yeah, I didn't even really consider that the, the density versus something like the total volume or maybe diameter of the bone um, could play a part. But geez, it's above my pay grade. I mean, it's an interesting question. There's no doubt about it. I mean, they do talk about sort of periosteal dip deposition. So that would be the outside of the bone. So really thickening the bone um, would theoretically increase the resistance to or the bone strength exponentially, mm -hmm. which makes sense. So that's, yeah, that's you, different. That's yeah. different than density. Right, right. Yeah, I just need more research in that area, it looks like, as always, but... And then the other question that they, they list is, quote, another important unanswered question is whether exercise training can alter bone material properties, e.g. collagen, mineralization, and micro damage. I don't know. I feel like we, we don't have anything to, to really draw from to think about that. It's a definitely an interesting point because you think about, does that make bones more brittle if they increase bone mineral density, but collagen content doesn't change? You know? I don't know. Right. Yeah. And this just makes me think more like, all right, let's just try and prevent the fall before it even happens because the evidence really isn't 
amazing that we can prevent the 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 fracture from the fall. You know, they talk about that one of their first headings that the, the prevent exercise for the prevention of the fragility fracture is kind of mixed or there's really no, there's no, there's just hasn't been an adequately powered long-term studies for it. So, mm-hmm. okay, then let's just maybe try and prevent the fall to begin with. And we have a little, perhaps better evidence or more clear evidence for that. Right. And so, I, I suppose the secondary effects of that training would be, oh, it's convenient that we've also addressed the bone mineral density changes as well. Just a happy side effect to that. Right. Just when in doubt, throw the kitchen sink at it, I guess. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Do it all. Do it all. But but also make sure you do the important things and then some other stuff. The belt and suspenders approach. I don't know. Someone said that that I listened to once. Another unanswered question is, um, do high-grade manual therapy manipulations contribute to increased bone mineral density? I'd love to know if that's something that you've heard. No, I just made that up, but I'm sure that's somewhere you could find it. I need to increase psychic power, Sean. Eventually you don't even need your bones. Yeah. My goal over the break has been to really dial in my chakras and my energy and get that. I've been training to be a Jedi. So I have Yoda to, well, this is actually Grogu, but he inspires me. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Yeah. You can't call him Yoda. That's like a triggering. That's like a triggering thing for some people. For sure, yeah. I've never, I haven't seen basically, any of those. We basically reacted the conversation. Hey, Sean. I mean, you guys. You guys talked over me at the beginning. So. No, you're right. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. No, but a lot of people were like, you know, pissed off about that because initially they were kind of setting it up, roping people in. It was actually Baby Yoda, but of course we knew it couldn't have been Baby Yoda based on the timeline. But anyway. Was that, a, was that a spoiler? Because I haven't seen the... Oh, shit. Um, I mean, I haven't actually seen that part of The Mandalorian either where they actually reveal his name. I, I, I mentioned that. That makes sense. Of course, it couldn't have been Baby Yoda. There's no way. Impossible. Let's leave all this out. The last probably 20 minutes. <laughs> Just cut it. I don't know. I can, there might have been something good in there. I can chop and rearrange it. It'll be fine. Cut and paste. Yeah, no. Um, uh, John, great paper, man. This is... Okay. I enjoyed reading this. Glad we could talk about it. Yeah. And I thought a good discussion overall. Do we have any final points or have we kind of covered everything we want to cover? Can't think of anything. Can't go wrong getting strong. Nope. That's the coolest thing to me is it's like there's so many, there's so many other benefits, you know? Like, um, and that's the other thing, again, this, when the part where the CSCS book is talking about, like, and they talk about power training more too, and they're talking about like, increased speed like and that's the, the other thing i think i forgot to bring up about the power training is like increased um maintenance of type 2 fibers and stuff right you lose so much that's a lot of old people get really slow and stuff and it's like maybe if you maintain some of those type 2 fibers more and you do a little more powerful lifting um you can have increased you know reaction time increase whatever like, i think that's pretty cool but that's not a point for the thing i just thought that was something that's interesting <laughs> all right well, if, uh, if we don't have any other thoughts, I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up. So, Yeah. I think that this paper just helped us be a little less wrong next time we talk about this stuff. Sure. So that's always good. Cool. All righty. Uh, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. 
appreciate it. And I guess we'll catch you in probably at this rate, another six and a half months. I will see you guys in 2022. 2022. All right. <laughs> First of the year or last of the year. We'll cap it here. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Peace out. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. We'd love to hear any comments, questions, or feedback that you have. We can be reached on Instagram at BTA Podcast or by our email, beyondtheabstract1 at gmail.com. Also, if the platform you listen to this episode on allows you to rate, go ahead and give us a review. It really helps us out. We'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.